Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. My guest today is James Hewitt. James is a performance scientist, award-winning communicator, and you'll see that on this podcast. And he's dedicated his career to enabling people to perform at their best through sharing novel data, cutting edge insights, practical tools, and developed his work amongst the world's most demanding and top performing organizations. James has worked with Formula One drivers, numerous CEOs, and cyclists of all kinds of levels, among just so many other professions. I've wanted to speak with James for a number of years now. I came to know his work through a gentleman by the name of Dr. Aki Hinsa, who is one of James' mentors. And it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with him in this conversation. We talked about really what it's like to be a world-class athlete, and James has some background in that. We talked about knowledge work specifically, and most of this episode contains really tactical tools for you to both evaluate your current situation with the knowledge working environment, but also to really take it to that next level. For instance, how you can look at the world of circadian rhythms and determine really what your most productive time is. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash James, that's J-A-M-E-S, if there was any confusion there, and enjoy my conversation, sure to be the first of many, with James Hewitt. Seems like travel is picking up again, here in Europe at least, and that means I'm going to be on the road. When I'm on the road, things like movement are particularly important to me. In fact, it's important to me all the time, but time-constrained movement is often hard to find. That's why I always have the Be Strong blood flow restriction bands in my luggage. You can check out the podcast that I did with the founder, Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson, who's also of Live High, Train Low fame. And you can also check out my podcast with Sten Stray Gunderson as well. We get into a lot, and people like Mark Wahlberg are using these blood flow restriction bands all the time. You can get yours at bestrong.training and use the code BOOMER for 10% off. James, I'm a longtime fan, so thank you for coming on today to have a fun chat. Thank you. It's a real privilege to be here. So I followed your work uh, for a long time and love some of the work you've done both in the sporting world, but also taking that to the quote unquote knowledge worker, if you will. And given just what I know about this audience, I'm really happy we're going to have this conversation today, but I want to start with just you and your background. So uh, I know you have some background in sport and there's a whole journey there that brought you to where you are today. And so maybe we can touch on just sort of some of that sporting background and what got you really interested in performance science. That's a Well, thanks for that question, um, Boomer. It's a, it's a good one. And it's something I sometimes ponder it myself and say, how did I end up here? 
and um, and and I feel like I've got a quite coherent narrative now. Um, but I don't know whether I'm just post-rationalizing. But I'll kind of share it with you. Kind of, uh, um, I, I, as, I do that uh, all the time, so it's okay. Because um, it's all going to sound completely logical now, but it didn't always always feel like that. But but what one thing that I think has always been true and um, and consistent is I feel like I've had a guiding question um, in my mind for as long as I can remember. And and that question I would summarize it now as what does it take to be the best we can be. And for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with that. And so um, uh, I actually spent a few years um, uh, living in uh, North America when I was a kid with my with my dad's job. And um, and I remember kind of being three years old watching space shuttle launches. And I was obsessed with space. I wanted to be an astronaut. I was obsessed with astronauts. They just epitomized the best we can be uh, for kind of a three, you know, four-year-old kid. And um, and so I've always been fascinated with that question and um, and explored it kind of in, in my own life as well. Um, for me, the kind of one expression of that um, was in sport, and um, I wasn't a particularly uh, talented athlete by any stretch of the imagination. But I, um, at a young age, um, kind of being a um, kind of young, very young teenager, stumbled across this obscure sport called inline speed skating. And because um, I was always terrible at football, you know, I, I was rubbish at team sports. It, it, it's, um, uh, you know, and I just kind of put myself in a box. I said, I'm not good at sport, but I, I stumbled across this, this sports inline speed skating sport. I found I was actually quite good at it. And I ended up kind of representing Great Britain on the national team, uh, which wasn't as great as it sounds. It wasn't that hard to get on the team, if I'm really honest. Um, but got to travel around Europe as a teenager and um, got some pretty good results in the end. And was in some really fun competitions, and um, and this is it was during that process that I started to um, uh, you know, figure out what it took to start a journey of becoming the best you can be. And sport is a is a fantastic domain for that because it is measurable, uh, it's quantifiable, and um, and so you know I'd summarize that process that I started to formulate um, as a teenager in in four steps. You know I started by establishing where I wanted to be eventually. Uh, and when I was first doing this sport in speed skating, you know, it was uh, kind of win a medal um, at that time at the European Championships. Didn't achieve it, but that's what I wanted to do. And um, the second step is I always wanted to be as clear as possible about where I was starting from to try and evaluate that. Then I'd break down the steps that were required um, to get to where I want to be. And then the fourth step is probably the most important one is I didn't articulate it like this at the time as a young teenager, but I'd always be trying to put feedback mechanisms in place to evaluate my progress and adjust. And so in speed skating, I was progressing. I could see results improving, times changing. But I started to realize quite early on, I really didn't have the right phenotype. I didn't have the right body type to be a great inline speed skater. And I had too many slow twitch muscle fibers. And I was trying so hard to um, counter that. So I was spending a lot of time in the gym, uh, kind of uh, in the weight room, uh, kind of doing strength and conditioning training, kind of on my own, just trying to read books, trying to figure it out. You know, this is like the, this is like pre pre millennium. This is before the year two thousand. I'm aging myself now, and um, so um, and and this guy, this old guy in the gym, used to kind of uh, say hi and like you know sometimes he'd give me some advice about my lifts and things like that. And then one day he was like, you know, what what are you training for? Because you're here like pretty much every day. And I was like, well, I'm trying to get to be a good inline speed skater. He says, you don't look like a speed skater. He said, you look like a cyclist. I was like, all right, you know. And I was like, why do you think that? And like looking back, I was this like scrawny teenager you know, lifting probably 40 kilos on the squat, you know, and, uh, and mm-hmm. obviously I wasn't going to be a super kind of fast switch speed skater, 
So he said, well, you know, if you ever, if you ever think about trying cycling, give me a call. Um, and um, it turns out this guy, a guy named Jeff Cook, had been the national team track cycling sprint coach, but he'd also worked with a lot of uh, road cyclists over the years. And, uh, and sure enough, he was true to his word. I, I kind of said, when I evaluated my progress, it wasn't happening. I thought, maybe, maybe cycling is the sport for me. And this time, I was probably about 16. So I gave this guy a call and I said, um, uh, I'd really like to try cycling. I'd really like to get good. And um, I didn't tell him at the time, but I'd already done a bit of thinking and I figured that this could be a seven-year project. So I was 16 and I thought, can I become a professional cyclist by the time I'm 23? That was kind of the idea I had in my head. How, how um, did you and, arrive at seven years? Was that just sort of a, an arbitrary number or did you break it down like you did before? Yeah, I break it down because the the way that professional cycling or cycling is categorized is um, until you uh, get um, uh, until you're 23, it's broken down. So you've kind of got youth categories and whatever. Um, it starts to get more serious when you're in a junior category, which is up to 18. Okay. And then the kind of the proving ground where you figure out whether you've got what it takes is called the espoir category, which is French for hope, which is um, uh, under 23 racing. And so my logic was, was um, I was 16. And I had about a year and a half left as a junior. And uh, I uh, be when I was 18, I'd be in the under 23 category and I had kind of a few years to try and figure out whether I could make it. Um, and um, now the other the crazy thing is, is at this point, like, I'd never even ridden a road bike. Um, uh, you know, I, I, so um, but anyway, I got one. Uh, I got a road bike. Um, I borrowed one, got a track bike. And from day one, decided I was going to be a professional cyclist. So, you know, six months later, I was in the junior national, um, uh, uh, so, so the uh, national track championships, uh, uh, riding the pursuit. Um, first time I'd ever ridden a track bike in the in the um, the national championships. And it was wow. terrible. I finished 11, 11th or something like that. Um, hadn't really, didn't really know what I was doing. I'd never even ridden on the velodrome before. It was just ridiculous, but I, I did it. Mm-hmm. So it was a steep learning curve. Um, initially with a local team when I was 18 um, and turned in this under 23 category, I joined a national level junior team. Um, and then I started to get more structured in my training, measuring speed and distance and heart rate was about the limit at that point because power meters were too expensive. And basically I was saying for a given route, am I getting faster? And I was getting faster. I started to win a few races. I uh, started to understand how to structure my training better. So when I was 19, I moved to France to race full-time, uh, initially for a regional team. wasn't really full-time, had a job in a hotel to, to pay, the, pay some bills. Um, but um, I was there because back in the day, you know, if you wanted to be a good cyclist, you had to move to the continent. There wasn't really a pathway uh, in England where I was living at the time. And I think a pivotal moment for me was when I got my first power meter. I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the technology to measure essentially the mechanical work that you're doing on the bike. And it's fantastic mm-hmm. because it's so measurable because then it gave me this um, uh, this kind of normative data set. So I knew some professional riders. I knew a few of them who had power meters. Uh, they were very forward thinkers. And I'd asked them to share their data with me. So I knew what it would take to be a pro. And then I looked at where I was starting from. I broke down and I understood what kind of progression I would have to achieve to get to be a professional cyclist. So I started to progress and eventually I got a ride on an elite under 23 team. And that was linked with a professional team called Brioche de Boulanger. Uh, at the time, uh, I was starting to make a bit of money through that so I could actually race full time properly and really um, start to invest in my progression. And I was controlling my diet and I was kind of getting super skinny and I was trying to get more powerful. And you know, I was I was using every legitimate kind of legal means to try and improve my performance. The whole illegal mm-hmm. side of it, I didn't dabble in. 
that's another story. Uh, I came, <laughs> I, I encountered it. Um, one of my teammates got mm-hmm. busted. He was in a housemate, and we all got arrested in a the uh, was it a, was it an arrestor kind of thing or, or something else? Well, he was. He, uh, I think he. Um, from what I know, um, I mean, he ended up going to prison for a little bit of time. Uh, it was oh, wow. kind of lighter than that. It was kind of uh, it was testosterone and cortisone. I think um, uh, okay. that is what he had. Um, I understand. I'm not sure what was proven in the end. But anyway, um, you know, I wasn't going to go down that path. You know, it wasn't part of my experiment. Uh, I hadn't mm-hmm. uh, pre-registered those methods. Um, but um, but suffice to say, this is a long way of saying that um, I realised I wasn't a very good cyclist. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, I realised I wasn't going to make it to be a decent pro by the time I was in my final year of an under 23. You know, I had some conversations with people about maybe getting some, like, contracts with a small pro team. And they were just conversations. You know, uh, it was clear. I was never going to be great, but I'd learned a lot. And I'd actually discovered that, you know, I really enjoyed this process of breaking down the requirements uh, of understanding how you could become the best you can be in cycling. Um, and um, and I've actually started to help people informally along the way because people saw this skinny guy from England turn up in France and progress relatively quickly. It didn't feel quickly to me at the time. Uh, I was always thinking about what I wasn't achieving, but actually my progression looking back was was very good. So I decided to go back to university. Um, I uh, studied sports science at a university in the UK called uh, Loughborough, um, which is quite well known. Quite, quite famous for that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and um, and so um, and then subsequently yeah, set up my coaching business and and applied uh, the same process to the people I worked with. I worked with some elites, some professionals, but the vast majority of the people in my coaching business were amateurs who had incredibly demanding jobs. And so but this time I was establishing where they wanted to be. I was trying to be as clear as possible about where they were starting from, breaking down the steps that they needed to get to where they wanted to be and put those feedback mechanisms in place to evaluate their progress and adjust. But this was another pivotal moment because I realized I didn't have the feedback mechanisms to evaluate or consider how to adjust and structure what was going on in their working life. And what was going on in their working life was probably having the biggest impact of anything on their physical performance, whether it was psychological stress, whether it was jet lag, um, whether it was simply just not having the time um, or the focus to be able to engage with the training. And as I looked around, I felt that a lot of the tools that were there and frameworks didn't really fit uh, the purpose in terms of trying to create this integrated model for the people I was working with um, of, of combining demanding working life with quite demanding physical training. So I started to apply tools and frameworks from sports science. Um, uh, so um, models like polarized training, for example, um, mm-hmm. to, to try and understand working life and in particular knowledge work. So work where people think for a living, um, because all the clients I worked with were you know, management consultants and finance professionals and they worked in technology. Their brain was their resource. And it mm-hmm. led me to start to conceptualize knowledge work as a cognitive endurance activity in a similar way as um, cycling, as a physical endurance activity. And really that um, point was um, uh, the, the catalyst for the majority of my work and research uh, to this day. And so, so that is how I ended up kind of on this path, um, uh, inspired by my background in sport. And as I said, um, it's all very, it all sounds very linear now, um, and maybe some of it was, but at the time, it certainly didn't feel like that. Very cool. And thank you for sharing. It's very, it's very interesting to see somebody who can uh, take 
sort of a far-reaching goal and break it down into really easily actionable steps. And just the methods that I, by which you use are fascinating to me. I want to come back to mentors a little bit later, but when we start talking about knowledge work and you know, I've had the pleasure of doing this in my own life, but also trying to do it with others uh, as well. When we look at just knowledge work, and you mentioned some of these measuring tools, and I think it is becoming easier with many of these quantified self devices, but how do you look at, or I guess, let's kind of break down the problems that a typical knowledge worker has first, and then we'll kind of get into the different measurement steps that you use. So when you're working with somebody, you mentioned management consultants, uh, perhaps some of my former banker types, uh, but how would you classify or just sort of look at their workday and say, these are the obstacles that these these people face? Hmm. So, I mean, one one thing that you've probably gathered about me, if you kind of uh, is, uh, I quite like models and and frameworks. Mm-hmm. And and so, when I was trying to ask that question, I think you posed a very good question. Um, you know, how do you actually um, understand some of the challenges and problems and tackle those problems in knowledge work? And I I came up with a framework that seemed to was a heuristic device that seemed to describe what was going on. Um, because the problem is, as you said, we've got some tools to measure what is going on uh, in the brain. Um, but um, you know, you've got EEG, for example, and even though the temporal resolution of EEG is great, you know, we've got great time series data <clears throat> and we can see what's happening second to second. Um, then unfortunately, we don't really know what parts of the brain really, really precisely are, are doing what, when, and how they're interacting. And um, mm-hmm. we can have high resolution um, kind of in terms of spatially, but then we lose the temporal resolution. So the tools aren't really there yet. We can look at some of the outcomes um, uh, in terms of the type of work we're doing, what we're achieving, um, and um, and that can that can help. But again, it's fuzzy because you know in, in knowledge work, you know, maybe I think about an idea um, uh, for a new strategy for a company that I'm working with, for example, where I see maybe an integration premium by kind of putting together uh, this company and, and this technology and say you should work together to do this. I might just think about that for three weeks. Um, and then put it together in a proposal in the space of an hour and a half. Um, how do I measure that? You know, what's how do I yeah, measure yeah. that thinking and processing that went on relative to this very focused work that I might have done in ninety minutes to actually generate that proposal uh, for that client? And so, once I started to think about this, I said, you know, really, we can probably characterize the work that we do in different dimensions, or, or it's got different characteristics. So we say there's there's a characteristic related to the to the um, level of focus um, or the intensity of the focus associated with the work that we do. And um, there's a um, an aspect or a characteristic uh, related to the complexity of the work that we do. Uh, there's an aspect related to how much we switch during that time uh, between different tasks. Uh, and there's an aspect related to the time pressure that we feel like we're under. And actually, you can use those um, characteristics or those dimensions and measure them with self-report tools. Things like uh, the NASA TLX, for example, uh, that's got something called the Cognitive Task Load Model. And and the NASA TLX has been used in a lot of human factors research to make sure astronauts don't get overloaded on space shuttles. I think they failed. (laughs) If you've ever looked at a space shuttle kind of uh, um, dashboard, you know, that that thing was going to be overwhelming for anyone. But anyway, um, so I looked at that and that inspired me, this Cognitive Task Load Model. and, And I came up with a heuristic to think about some of the challenges knowledge workers face and what to do about them. And I describe it as cognitive gears. 
And so you can essentially, you can think about these cognitive gears as three zones or three types of work. And, uh, but they're, they're analogous to um, the kind of three zones, the three broad zones that you might use for physical endurance training. And so if I think about a knowledge worker's day or my day, I think about how much time they spent in each of these cognitive gears. So there's a high cognitive gear, um, which is uh, akin to high-intensity intervals in a workout. And three features characterize this high cognitive gear. The work is demanding, it's complex, and it requires sustained focus. So that would be me writing that proposal for that client. And um, mm -hmm. there's a low cognitive gear, and that represents time spent resting, recovering, and but perhaps also just mulling over ideas at low intensity. Maybe when you go for a walk and these ideas are just flowing around, you know, uh, or you're in the shower just pondering on something. That's obviously really valuable. Um, and that was like mm -hmm. the kind of pondering I did when I was thinking about the integration premium. How can I put these things together for the client? Then there's this middle cognitive gear, and that represents um, menial tasks, switching work. Um, and uh, when you're doing emails and you're doing phone calls and you're doing short meetings, and it's necessary. It's a necessary part of many knowledge workers' days. But if I looked at a knowledge worker's day, and one of the tools I'd often use was just get people to show me their calendar. Um, and if they didn't keep their calendar in a very structured way, I'd encourage them to do that for a period of time. Is that mm -hmm. um, this middle cognitive gear really dominated people's waking hours? It wasn't just the conventional work day. It was almost from the moment they woke up in the morning uh, to just before they went to bed at night menial tasks and switching work with this high cognitive gear. Um, if it ever appeared, it was very brief periods, um, uh, which were very difficult to protect. And this low cognitive gear was often always non-existent. There was very little time for this kind of reflective thinking and, and recovery. And so one of the ways that I've um, tried to counter that and tackle that is help people to identify this challenge, that the middle gear is swamping our conscious hours and, and to get more structured uh, and to be more structured and proactive about prioritizing, protecting time for high gear work at the right time mm -hmm. and really being deliberate about this low cognitive gear time for rest, reflection and recovery uh, is the way I talk about it. And then just try and you can't eliminate it, but minimize this middle gear, which is taking over. And you know, anecdotally, at least I found personally with people that I've worked with that heuristic provides a tool to maybe identify some of the challenges in knowledge work and maybe start to think about if we've got the luxury to do that, structuring our days um, uh, with a bit more intentionality and in a way that I think can represent some general principles about how our brain and body work, which you know, perhaps we could talk about as well. Mm -hmm. uh, why don't we, because I would like to go into this, because this sort of model you portray it well in your book is sort of very similar to those three training modes that you do physically. But uh, so I've, been fascinated by productivity for a long time. And I think there's a somewhat of a danger in that world when you get into the weeds that everybody follows Parkinson's law and we're all just sort of pomodoroing our days to the point where you just end up, you know, you'll have one good day and then six bad days afterwards. Mm. And so if you don't mind, I would love to just kind of break down some of those. You mentioned helping people identify uh, where this middle part is taking over. Mm. I mean, obviously email is one, but is it a matter of measuring the amount of screen time on their phone, uh, where they go on their browser, all of that stuff? We can just start to break that down. That'd be really helpful. Mm. So I think, I mean, one of the most helpful um, 
the, the most helpful tools initially are objective. And so um, if you're an Office uh, 365 user, I often encourage people to just turn on uh, workplace analytics if they've not done that. And, um, and, and just spend a period of time being deliberate about um, structuring your calendar and recording things in your calendar. Because I think sometimes we, we trick ourselves and we, um, uh, about what's actually going on because we don't record it. And so one of the simplest tools is just spend a couple of weeks and actually um, diarize, or even if you do it after the event, record when you are recovering and uh, record that time that you were focused. Um, and um, and then take a step back, extract that data, you know, something like workplace analytics, and just say, how much focus time did you have? How many emails did you respond to? How many meetings did you have? Um, and 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 actually come up with a kind of your own dashboard to to describe that. That's probably one of the most most helpful tools. But then I'll try and integrate it and with other data sources as well. So I'd start to say, so this is what is going on. This is kind of your starting point. How are you responding to that? So how does that, are there patterns associated with your sleep, for example? Um, so use some kind of wearable device, or you can even use a log, you know, a sleep log. I'm pretty sure 80% of the people here on this uh, podcast, listen to this, are using a wearable, but you can just use a Probably. sleep log and they're okay. Um, and um, so use some kind of wearable. You know, I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, I've got several wearable devices I use, but um, I think measuring your sleep and recognizing that there's some limitations in accuracy, but you know, is there an association between the number of meetings you have in a day and how you sleep? Um, is there an association with your heart rate variability average during the night, for example? And then start um, putting in overlaying data about the workouts that you're doing um, and, uh, and, and how that's having maybe having an influence. Where is the correlation there? And use some kind of journal feature. Like I've used the, the Streaks app um, periodically uh, to measure different behaviors and start to look at kind of, um, if you're doing breathing exercises, for example, or some kind of meditation. And, and it is kind of stuff that I'm sure people are doing on this, uh, on this uh, podcast already who are listening to it, but building up a data set that's, that says, where are you now? And then starting to identify kind of the, um, uh, the different things that could be improved. But I think that the most important step, though, is uh, once you've done that, to just pick one thing that you're going to work on. Because I think that you know, the, the challenge that you described a moment ago, which is you know, um, uh, this uh, uh, kind of sense that we have these perfect days followed by kind of all these, these rubbish days. Um, sometimes I see that that can be a result of um, as feeling like we need to optimize everything and ending up optimizing nothing. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so you know, this, again, goes back to a principle in athletic training, in, in sports training, uh, in periodization. Um, so you know, there's all kinds of debates around periodization, but essentially the fundamental principle behind it recognizes that it is impossible to optimally adapt or build every capacity simultaneously. Uh, and actually, there's a case for prioritizing specific capacities and building those capacities at different times. So maybe there's a period focused on building aerobic capacity. Maybe there's a period with a greater emphasis on anaerobic capacity. Maybe there's a period focused on muscular strength or, or um, force development or whatever. Um, and so I often encourage people to say, okay, we've established now that there's 30 different things you need to do. You need to uh, allocate more time for focus, protect it, switch off notifications, whatever. You need to improve your sleep. You need to reduce the number of meetings. In particular, often one of the things I see consistently is, and I've seen this in some data from my academic research, um, that um, there's a quite strong relationship between the, um, uh, the time that you finish your last meeting and the time you try to go to sleep, obviously, um, and, um, and what type of thinking you do during that time. So something else we could talk about, um, you know, whether that thinking is problem-solving pondering or what we call work-related rumination, this perseverative mm -hmm. thinking where we struggle to switch off. But when you've evaluated all these, then I'd, get, I'd rank them and I'd say, okay, 
in terms of where you want to be eventually, what do we need to build first? Um, not necessarily about what you think is most important, but maybe what's going to have the biggest effect. Also, maybe what things can you do now that are going to make the next things easier? Obviously, we talk about sleep all the time. That pretty much always ends up being the thing if people are not sleeping enough. Yeah. Um, but but break it down and and get clear about prioritization. One of the um, you probably, I don't know if anyone on your podcast has talked about this before. I'm sure they have. But um, there's um, there's a phenomenon known as the the Zyganic effect. And mm-hmm. um, and the, can you, you explain know, it, that a little bit for everybody? Yeah, sure. So um, so this is one of the kind of theories um, which can help it help to explain why we find it difficult to prioritize because everything feels important. And um, it can also um, uh, help to explain acutely why we can find it challenging to focus on one task because we're so aware of the other things that we need to do. Um, mm-hmm. So essentially, our brains are vulnerable to certain situations that can make it more difficult to prioritize, plan, and focus. And uh, the Zagonic effect um, is a way of describing this vulnerability. Uh, so it was named originally after this Soviet psychologist uh, called Bluma Zagonic, and um, uh, and it describes this experience that we have of continuing to think about a task um, when we have started it, but we're unable to finish it. And um, and so there's some theories around the Zagonic effect um, that suggest that um, it might also be responsible for tying up cognitive resources. And so there's been some studies which um, uh, indicate that people do worse on a brainstorming task if they're prevented from finishing a simple warm-up task beforehand, because that unfinished warm-up task seems to be clogging up their active memory. Um, So in contrast, uh, our cognitive resources are liberated and performance seems to be improved uh, if participants in that study example were able to plan uh, to complete that unfinished task later. Um, So, um, But their study make some interesting points that are relevant here. And one of those points is that those plans needed to be highly specific for them to be successful in eliminating thoughts of unfulfilled goals. Um, mm-hmm. so, so when I've kind of done that process and we thought about, here's the 50 things that, that you need to do to optimize your life, create some specific plans, but accept that you're not going to do them all straight away. Some of these might be things that you do down the line. And again, um, start to think about uh, your, your opti- this optimization process like an athlete. You know, I, I know I need to build strength, but right immediately I need to start with endurance. So I'm going to I'm going to build this endurance base first. For example, that might not be right, but it might be. The point being that you prioritize something, but there will be a specific plan about how you're going to develop your strength later. And it seems to just quieten the brain to free us from that zygonic effect. And there's various tools that I use in practice um, uh, in terms of that specific planning process. Um, mm-hmm. And um, which which I, I can share, but but you know that's kind of tactically how I'd start to to think about that process of breaking it down. Uh, well, let's play a little game of choose your own destiny here. I want to pick your brain on those tools because obviously people are listening to this, and we have a number of people on the show, and I know myself, I've been guilty of this in the past, that kind of have in their mind that they could do everything at once, and we you know, may have this training system that we think can create anti-fragility or whatever it is, right? And uh, as you said, you know, periodization is probably the better path. So one path that you can choose is the tools first. And then I want to kind of go into uh, the tactics that you mentioned earlier around that period, because sleep is 
sleep, stress, and nutrition are the three num- top issues of people listening to the show. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that period between last meeting and bed, I want to go a little bit deeper there too. So James, the floor is yours. Which, which way do you want to go first? Well, can't we do everything? I would just contradict well, everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I think I, that was like a good volume. I mean, it is the Olympics right now. So that was a good bump set spike right there. So nice job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, there's, a, there's probably a way to maybe link them together um, and, and think about this. And so we can maybe talk about some zygonic effect eliminating tactics. We can maybe then like shift into thinking about maybe um, some focus techniques. So, and then talk about how you switch off. And you know, one of the things that I found to those areas that you just described, uh, you know, around wanting to optimize performance, trying to deal with stress, thinking about how we eat, struggling to get to sleep because you're thinking about what to eat and how stressed you are and how to optimize your performance. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. And so it'd be nice if we can maybe try and blend them. But you know, if I was to sum up one in one phrase that resonates with me and seems to resonate with quite a few people who experience this is if there's one thing that I think many of us would like to um, experience, it would be a greater capacity um, to switch on when we need to and switch off when we want to. But the interesting thing is, and getting a sense of kind of understanding your, your listeners, um, the switching on part often isn't the problem. It's the switching off when we want to, that switch off on of demand. Course. But I do think that the two are uh, really inseparably linked. I mean, I think to, to zoom in quickly and just say, how can we free ourselves from the Zagarnik effect? Um, I'll probably say there's there's three um, uh, uh, primary tools that I would suggest people use um, uh, to do that, and one um, is ancient, and but it's uh, it's sometimes overlooked because it's been around for so long, and it's the importance urgency matrix from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I won't go into great detail about that. Google it, you'll find it, and it's just a really practical way um, to start to take all those tasks and actually. Um, take them out of your head and think clearly about uh, what is most important, what's urgent, uh, and and what maybe do you just need to um, kind of minimize you know, those distractions, interruptions. Um, the second tool um, is another matrix, and it's the action priority matrix. And um, essentially, it's um, uh, a way to um, operationalize the Pareto principle or the 80-20 rule, um, because it can help you to differentiate between um, the menial tasks which need to be checked off your list so they don't become a distraction, and um, with the tasks which bring real results and should be protected from distraction and interruptions. Um, so the action priority matrix, and um, again, I think people can probably find it, but if not, happy to share it, uh, where essentially you've got effort on the x-axis, you've got impact on the y, uh, and you've got um, uh, quadrants then of quick wins, major projects, fill-ins, thankless tasks. So they're just mm-hmm. two really practical tools. And, and the final thing is just a, um, a variation on a question I posed a moment ago where just consistently asking yourself, uh, what is the most important thing that you can do today that will make tomorrow better? Um, and really just um, uh, structuring your time and energy in service of that goal uh, so that you're making these consistent um, uh, these consistent improvements over time. Um, but um, but it's, it's a clarifying question. So they're, they're kind of the some of the, the tools that I would use. Um, I mean, I'm happy to kind of um, zoom in a bit more and say kind of what how would I optimize that focus time? Maybe the switching on time. Then maybe mm-hmm. you know, we can talk about how do you how do you switch off. But I'll pause and take a breath in case there's anything that you want to you want to to kind of re- uh, reflect on or respond to. So that's look that, that's beautiful in terms of just giving people here tactical actionable 
models really to follow in order to to implement uh, these kind of things. Now, identifying the optimal focus time, which I think is where you're going here, um, there's certain people myself, I, I tend to be much more of a morning person. And so first thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, wake up, meditate, go uh, is has worked well for me. But for those who haven't really spent as much time thinking about or maybe have spent so much time in that sort of middle gear that they don't even know what their optimal time is anymore. How do you work through that with somebody? Cause like we have all these tools, you know, genetics testing, which may or may not be useful. Uh, we can probably even get like 24 hour cortisol levels on people and start using that as a tool. But how would you break that down? During my conversation with James, you'll see we get in a lot into structures, models, and different ways to perform at your best. We talk about some of these tools, some of these wearables that can help you elevate yourself to the next level. One of the tools that I continuously use or use every other day as per recommendation is the V-Lite. My tool of choice is the Neuro Alpha. It helps get me into deeper meditations, helps me rest after a grueling day, and really just helps me bring myself to every moment with much more presence and performance. You can get yours at vlight.com and use the code BOOMER for a 10% discount. Well, I try, I try to keep it really simple. I mean, I think those tools are yeah. fantastic and they, they can be really useful. Um, but often what I'll say to people is... Um, if hopefully there's a time that you can remember uh, where you had a vacation or a holiday, as we call it in England. And um, during that time, um, uh, if you had a holiday, ideally a couple of weeks, um, I encourage people to just reflect back and think, remember how they felt. And so what kind of rhythms emerged when they didn't have the external pressures of work uh, in particular? Um, did they become more of a morning person or more of an evening person or in somewhere in between? Because very often that rhythm that you describe, that preference um, for morningness or, or eveningness, um, uh, often is driven as much by uh, what's going on in our environment as it is by our own body clock, our own circadian rhythm. So I encourage people first to start to think about that. You know, what happens when those external pressures are removed? And, um, and often you'll find that people's um, real circadian rhythm, their chronotype, um, which describes that tendency towards morningness or eveningness, will, will start to emerge. And then I'll encourage people to say, are there ways that you can start to structure your time and how you deploy your energy in normal life outside of holidays, which are in service of that chronotype and more aligned with that, that tendency? So that's, that's, that's one piece of it. The other thing that I'll do is, is really get people to think about their light exposure. And because you know, in industrialized societies, our body clock has been often been completely screwed up and often driven by the fact that um, the light exposure that we get indoors um, is so low in terms of you know measurement of lux it's often less than 10,000 lux and um, uh, mm. indoors and um, uh, significantly less than that relative to the outdoors and so we've we've become desynchronized with these natural cues in our environment so I'd also say to people start to prioritize some bright light exposure ideally from outside within the first two hours of of waking um, and and use that as a way to start to re-entrain your circadian rhythm whatever that is even when it's re-entrained um, you will, uh, it's retrained again, uh, or realigned, sorry, is probably a better phrase to use. And um, when it's realigned, you will, um, uh, you still, people still probably have a tendency towards morningness or eveningness, eveningness but at least you've got a sense of, uh, of what that is. And um, so the first step, what's, what's natural for you, kind of 
what happens when you realign uh, in terms of getting some light exposure at the right time, also minimizing that light exposure uh, later on. But then finally, just once you've done that, start to just pay attention to your energy levels. And um, mm-hmm. you know, generally what we'll find is a lot of people do experience a peak um, kind of uh, uh, maybe two to four hours after they wake up, uh, which often relates to kind of four to six hours after kind of a temperature minimum in their circadian rhythm, um, which they will have experienced uh, while sleeping. Um, but so about 20% of, but only about 20% of people are what we call a more extreme morning type, according to the evidence, which sounds like you might be in that category, you know, that kind of meditate, ready to go. Um, seems like about 20% of people are this slightly more extreme late type. You know, they, they will feel kind of groggy all day uh, and really start to wake up later on. Everyone else seems somewhere in between. But what I encourage people to do is when they've done that finally is to um, start to try and characterize their days with another heuristic. And, and that's just to simply divide their day into three periods, uh, a peak, a valley, and a rebound. And the order of that will depend on your chronotype. So if you're more of a morning type, you've got that morning tendency, even if it's not extreme, you'll probably go peak, valley, rebound. If you're more of a late type, um, you'll probably start the day um, with that um, valley, then go into the rebound, and then have your peak later on. But accept that those three phases have distinct characteristics that regardless of when it occurs, the peak is likely to be the best time for that high-focus productive work. Um, that um, valley is going to be the best time probably for that low-gear rest reflection. Um, and then that rebound is going to be a great time probably for the kind of the menial tasks and the switching work. Because so you do high-gear with the peak, low-gear with the valley, middle-gear with the rebound. And there's some evidence to support this as well, because in the rebound phase at that part of the day, it seems that our inhibition, our cognitive inhibition reduces, so we're more likely to be distracted anyway. So synchronizing the switching tasks with that rebound in your day, um, you know, whether that's in the morning for the late types or at the end of the day for the early types, seems to help people to start to synchronize those patterns and get a bit more out of their day. So if we were to, this is really, really helpful, by the way, and um the whole study of biological rhythms has fascinated me uh, for a long time. Now, if we were to overlay this with physical training, because ultimately that's going to have an impact on your ability to perform in the workplace as well. How are we to look at placing physical training within that structure of peak Valley and sort of that, that ramp up time at the end? Um, if I'm, let's say, an extreme morning person, do I just put it dent in the middle of my valley because I'm not really functioning that well anyway? Or how should I look at that? Mm. So I really encourage people, and I try and do this myself, to um, to zoom out first. Because I think that um, one of the big challenges, again, uh, for high, people who want to be high performers, who are high performers, who want to be really physically fit, to be performing at work, to have great relationships, is we, we fall back into that trap of trying to do everything all the time. And so the tendency is... We say people, people will say, James, tell me the perfect time to exercise every day, forever. And it's impossible because what happens when kind of work gets really busy or a kid gets sick or you have to take your dog to the vets or whatever, but what happens is, is life gets in the way every time. And as you described yourself, you have a perfect day, you know, I'm crushing the world. And then it all falls apart and you just feel like you're a terrible person who just fails at everything. And, um, and it just creates this, this angst. And I've been there. I was there last week, actually. Um, and, and so I encourage people to say, okay, this, this level of consistency is impossible. We've got to accept variation. And we've got to go back to that kind of periodized model. And so what I'll say to people is, 
you're always going to experience this peak, this valley, and this rebound. But what you do in that peak, valley, and rebound is going to change over time. And so with fitness, for example, we know that um, if you can synchronize your training um, with kind of the period of your day, um, uh, it's often driven by circadian phase, but where kind of your, your body temperature is uh, at its highest, and um, particularly for strength training, you're going to lift heavier, you're going to move faster. And that's that's a great, that's a great thing. The peak for physical training then might be the afternoon for some people. And it might be that you've got some difficult work projects that you've got a series of meetings at that time. Unfortunately, it's impossible. But what I'd encourage people to do is I look at their calendar in the long term and say, and what do I need to emphasize at different points? So maybe exercise, you do feel at your best in the morning for exercise, but it's not possible all the time. Look at your calendar and say, okay, there's a period of time now where I've got four weeks after this really demanding project has come to an end uh, before the next one really starts to ramp up. I'm really going to focus on this four weeks of really and um, putting a lot in the tank, really trying to build my physical fitness. So I'm going to choose to dedicate during this four weeks a portion of my peak time to physical training um, to really try and build my physical fitness. There's another period of time where you might say it's going to be really demanding at work um, and uh, you've got a lot of deadlines, you're trying to finalize a project. You probably need to dedicate that peak time then to your cognitive work and basically just fit physical exercise in whenever you can. Um, and when you do fit it in, accept that it shouldn't be that intense probably. Because um, what I often see kind of with high performers is um, because we're trying to fit everything in all the time, often what we end up doing is massively overloading uh, our sympathetic nervous system. We're basically completely overloading on stress and um, physical stress and mental stress. And, and the two are completely interlinked. You can't separate them out. You know, we'd love to be able to separate our mind and our body. And I think you know the, the Greek philosophy that informs a lot of our worldview in the West, I think, uh, lends itself to this kind of idea that we can separate them out, but we can't. And, and evidence has demonstrated in training, uh, in, uh, in sports science, that when we experience very high levels of stress, not only do we, and um, psychological stress, not only do we not adapt as effectively to physical training, we're actually more at risk of injury uh, at the same time. So I see all these people, and I do this myself sometimes, work incredibly hard um, in their, their working life, in their knowledge work, trying to still kind of, you know, keep their fitness and beating themselves up because, you know, their session, they're not, they're not completing the workout of the day to the, to the level and intensity they hoped. And, and they end every day just feeling like, you know, I failed. I didn't quite get the work done that I wanted to. My training session was terrible. Like now I can't sleep and, you know, it's going to like kill me because, you know, I read a book and like my brain's going to start to melt away into Alzheimer's, <laughs> you know, when I'm 42, I just take a step back, just look at the big picture and just say, this block is going to have to be about work. But this block can be a bit more about my fitness. And day to day, think about what, how do you need to structure your time to prioritize that thing that matters most? So on average, if you look at back at your kind of 12 months, you can say, on average, I tick the boxes 80% of the time. And that will mean over time from year to year, you're going to start to work towards those goals. That is the path. So going back to that model that I described at the very beginning, where you start to say, hey, where do I want to be? Be very clear about where you're starting now, um, which isn't going to be where you want to be. When you break down those steps to actually get there, um, you can't create a perfect routine that's going to be the same every day to achieve that. There's going to have to be phases with different emphases, um, which are going to reflect your priorities, what's most important at a given time. Um, and I've found you know, personally, uh, but also from people that I've worked with, that that longer term view um, is quite liberating. 
because you don't, uh, you're not just uh, pursued by this continual sense of not being good enough. Um, uh, you actually recognize that you're going to achieve it, but it's going to take some time. Um, and it creates a bit more margin, a bit more freedom uh, as a result of that. So, I mean, hopefully that answers your question to some extent, but that's kind of how, how, I'd, how I'd think about it. No, I love that. And the way you encourage flexibility, because there is this tendency, and I'm guilty of this, right? Like the type A person who wants to overschedule everything, including their morning routine. And then the moment some shit gets thrown in there, it's like, oh, wow, my day's over. Um, And so thank you for talking a little bit about that flexibility. Now, I want to go to the end of the day because there's something you alluded to earlier that you're researching now about meetings and then that process before going to bed and the ultimate impact on bed. So again, predominantly business people, entrepreneur types listening to this and sleep is a huge issue. We know that globally now. What does that end of day process uh, well, we kind of know how it looks in a lot of people, but what would be more optimal, if you will? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's there's a another model, a body of research that I find really helpful when we think about what is going on after work, and um, and it's uh, it relates to it's called work related rumination, and uh, and actually there's a, there's a questionnaire that was developed by someone called Professor Mark Cropley, the work related rumination questionnaire, and um, and he identified three factors. Um, in relation to work-related rumination. So there's um, uh, uh, affective rumination, problem-solving pondering, and detachment, which is kind of just being able to switch off. It's really interesting, actually, because when you, um, everyone thinks, ah, oh, just need to detach, just need to switch off. But when you look at detachment, um, the people who switch off completely, um, there's actually quite a strong association between people who switch off and actually lower work performance. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, and this isn't true for everyone. I know some incredibly high performers who can just switch off and sleep like babies. You know, uh, they just don't worry at all. Um, but my experience has been that a lot of people who are quite high performers really struggle to switch off, and they wish they could switch off completely, but they can't. And that, but actually, maybe that's not a bad thing. It seems that one of the strongest predictors of kind of either negative stress anxiety um, or an ability to kind of still sleep well and perform well seems to be whether you're in this um, affective rumination camp. Um, or the problem-solving pondering camp. And so after work, particularly once we start to get into the evening before, before sleep, um, a lot of the problems seem to revolve around this affective rumination, this perseverative thinking about work. It, there might even be an association in terms of our executive function here, in terms of an inability to, to switch uh, from these work-related thoughts to something else. So quite a lot of what I've been thinking about and what I've tried to put into practice is, is to try and equip people with some tools to switch from the affective rumination to um, to more problem solving uh, pondering, which seems to be uh, a bit healthier. And you know, one of the ways I characterize this is that it's about switching emotion to action a lot of the time. Um, and and so again, there's a framework that I've I've used to um, uh, to try and to try and operationalize this. And you know, it's not it's not peer reviewed. It's not evidence based. It's it's just a kind of coaching framework that that seems to help me sometimes and, and has, has helped to help some other people. Even though the work-related rumination um, kind of uh, research has obviously got a great a great evidence base behind it, and there's three steps to this process to switch the affective rumination to the problem-solving pondering. And the first step is to do what I'd say is identify sticky thoughts. So often we experience this affective rumination and we struggle to switch off, and um, because of um, 
thoughts that are associated with emotions. And these emotional thoughts seem to be particularly kind of sticky. And so the most emotionally sticky thoughts often seem to revolve around or you could reduce them to what I call a why-related thought or a why-related question. So you find yourself repeatedly thinking, you know, uh, why don't I ever manage to finish this? Or why am I always the one who has to take responsibility? Um, and we experience some unpleasant emotions that uh, are associated with that. And, and we feel stressed and we struggle to switch off. So the first step is to just notice and identify those thoughts and, and perhaps even take the time to, to write them down. And for many people, that is quite, quite powerful, that process of writing down. You know, why does so-and-so always do this? Or why do I always think that? The second step is to try and shift that emotion to action, because if we can do that, it starts to take away the power um, that's associated with it and actually switches into more of a problem-solving pondering. The third step is to, is to do that. And again, often I encourage people to write this down, but over time, this just becomes a kind of mental model which you embed and can start to activate when you need it, even if you don't need a pen and paper. But initially, I do encourage people to use a pen and paper. The step really involves just writing down that why thought, which you've probably already done, followed by a specific how action, um, which you can put into practice, even if you're not going to put that action into place straight away. So for example, if you keep thinking, why am I always the one who has to take responsibility? Then you would write a note, maybe reminding yourself to schedule a time to speak with your team about how responsibilities are being allocated tomorrow. And so um, again, you're leveraging some of those principles I mentioned earlier in relation to the Zyganic effect. You're creating a specific plan. You're probably freeing some cognitive resources. You know, a lot of these effects, we're often talking about the same thing, maybe from slightly different angles, this inability to switch off. So switch affective rumination to problem-solving pondering with that, what I'd call that why to how process, seems to help people to, um, to start to detach. The other thing you can do is simply to increase the amount of time between your final meeting or your final engagement with some kind of work-related technology um, and the time that you go to bed. That seems to help. Um, but the fourth thing, uh, the, sorry, the third thing relates to another framework. And um, this is um, was uh, driven by um, uh, a kind of concept which ended up being kind of uh, synthesized in a questionnaire called the Recovery Experiences Questionnaire that characterizes four different recovery experiences. Um, so it describes detachment, again, where we forget about work, we distance ourselves from work, relaxation where cognitive load drops and we actually physically change our posture and relax. Mastery-related activities, where you learn new things, you seek out new challenges that are unrelated to work, where your horizons are broadened. Um, and control, where you actually get a sense that whatever you're doing, you feel like you're getting to decide to do that. Someone else isn't imposing their schedule on you. So I find that this combination of a tactic to try and identify the why related thoughts or those emotive thoughts and switch them to actions, identify specific plans, and then kind of doing a mental checklist and saying, during that time towards the end of the day, you know, am I ticking kind of one or two or maybe more of those recovery experiences boxes? You know, am I physically distancing myself and detaching from work? Um, you know, uh, That might mean closing the door on your office and locking it and kind of hanging up the key, which is something that I've tried to get into the practice of doing. Um, mm -hmm. particularly since I've not been traveling and I've been working from home for the last year. Uh, secondly, are you have you physically changed your posture? So sometimes I fall into the trap at the end of the day of, um, you know, I'm like, oh, I'll finish work now. And I just stay on my computer, just tapping away. Maybe I'll watch some stupid YouTube videos or something. I think I'm relaxing, but I'm still in that same posture. I'm still, I haven't changed. And it's amazing. It's so intuitive. Sometimes we need checklists to remind ourselves to do these things. 
I'd go downstairs and actually sit on a chair and put my legs up. And that change in posture, even better if you can lie down, that has a, a really significant impact on your on your nervous system, on your physiology, in terms of uh, helping that parasympathetic break to start to slow down the sympathetic nervous system. Mastery is a great tool. It's a reason why hobbies are so powerful, but also it's why it's so harmful when we get too busy and hobbies go out the window. Learn new things. Do something new. Um, I've, uh, I've started to learn to play golf recently. I'm terrible at golf. I'm a really, really late starter. <laughs> Me, um, too. I'm Me too. I'm really enjoying the process. I'm having some lessons. You know, um, it's... It's useless. There's no reason really for me to play, learn to play golf for my professional life. You know, maybe I'll have some meetings or something one day. I don't know. I'm doing it because I'm learning a new skill and it's it's really fun. And I don't think about work. And when I've played a little bit of golf, you know, I've gone to the driving range, I've hit 50 balls and you know, they've gone all over the place. I actually feel really refreshed. It's not mastery, but maybe I'm on a path to achieving something, maybe approaching mastery in 10 years' time. Finally, control. If I've gone to the driving range, because I wanted to, not because someone told me to. So you know, they're just some, some tools, and I think there's a good evidence base to support them fundamentally and tactics that I'd encourage people maybe to try to, to actually start to switch off or at least switch into a more helpful mode of thinking at the end of the day, and um, which is something that I think many of us really, really struggle with, me included. So what do you, in a particular situation where a person just either owns their own business and feels like they can't shut off, or they just love what they do so much that their work is their hobby in many ways, mm. is there any model in this case for interjecting? Uh, would you, in that case, interject a hobby with that somebody or... Would you allow it to f flow freely as it is? I, I, I'm just curious because I run into these types of people all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the most you can never get someone to do what they don't want to do, and you know, I try not to be too prescriptive, uh, kind of in the way I approach kind of you know, coaching, working with people. I kind of say, you know, here are some models, here are some ideas, try it out, see if it works for you. And I think one of the things that's clear in high performers, whether it's you know, someone running their own business, for example, an entrepreneur very successful executive, even like a, a professional athlete, is um, there is a, a special energy that's driving them. Um, and, and normal kind of the ways of approaching life and work don't really apply. And uh, you know, one of the most unhelpful concepts, I think, for pretty much anybody, but particularly high performance, is this idea of balance, that we can achieve <laughs> this state of perfect equilibrium. Um, I think the energy that's driving um, a lot of high performers is passion. And there's actually a really interesting body of research around passion. Um, and one of the most helpful models um, that I've found in relation to this passion research characterizes passion as either harmonious or obsessive. And I can send some links to that if you're interested. And there's actually a, um, a scale, kind of a psychological scale that you can do to, uh, to measure your tendency towards obsessive or harmonious passion. And what I generally find in high performers and, and what I found when I start to kind of go off the deep end in my own life and work um, is when um, that harmonious passion starts to become obsessive. Because when passion is harmonious, you can do that really hard work, but somehow it's energizing and you enjoy it. And so if someone is in that harmonious state where they're putting in huge hours and doing massive amounts of work, but they're seeing great results and they're really enjoying it, what I'd often say is, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But just be aware of the fact that this passion that you're using is a really powerful force. It's like Star Wars. You know, it's, um, it's a powerful force. It's got a dark side. And you know, if, um, if, if harmonious passion 
is kind of the light side of the force. Obsessive passion is the dark side. And we're all at risk of tipping over there. So I'd encourage people initially, I wouldn't interject. I wouldn't say, oh, you really need to stop working on this great project that's kind of you know super profitable and really fulfilling and you need to go and pick a new hobby. Just crazy. But I would perhaps interject if someone started to recognize that they were tipping into that obsessive passion, um, you know, that actually um, they weren't feeling so energized anymore. One of the number one characteristics or warning signs that you're tipping into obsessive passion um, is uh, that you experience what I call rigid persistence. You keep going because you feel like you have to keep going. You keep going because you're really scared that if you stop, something bad will happen. And the problem is, is that you know that actually um, is ends up uh, being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Often, you keep going because you fear that something bad will happen, and because you keep going, something bad does happen. You know, we end up with kind of you know burnout, or or even just being so exhausted that you have to take some extended time off, and before you can before you can recover. So it's when you start to see the warning signs of that kind of obsessive passion that I'd in, into um, kind of try and encourage people to intervene for themselves. But the, um, at the same time, though, I do find that one of the greatest risks for many of us is we often think we're immune. We think we're the special case. And, um, yeah. and there's a real... And so sometimes I think about hobbies increasingly as um, uh, uh, similar to prehabilitation or prehab for athletes. Athletes hate prehab. You know, like everyone knows, like we need to be doing something for our rotator cuff, right? You know, mm-hmm. even if you kind of... You've, you've got to do something I do anyway. This, you've probably got your own thing you have to do, especially as we start to get a bit older. Um, and it's boring. It's like, there's nothing wrong with my shoulder. Why do I need to do these stupid exercises with this little band? I just want to smash it, you know? I just want to do some cleans. Get me in the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, but hobbies and things like this, they're, they're like the prehabilitation for a cognitive high performer. Um, and, and it's part of this mindset shift of seeing rest as productive. Um, it's, it's a shame we shouldn't have to. It would be really nice, wouldn't it, if like we were like, my sense of self-worth is so complete and I deserve <laughs> to rest. And, uh, you know, for some people that works really well. And I've heard people say that it doesn't really work for me. You know, I'm, it's probably because underneath it all, I'm probably an insecure overachiever, you know? Um, but, um, I have to tell, I have to rest by telling myself rest is productive. This is my prehabilitation for my cognitive high performance. And it's, it's awful, isn't it? But it seems to work for me and it works for some of the people that, that I work with as well. Oh, well said. Well said. James, I, I want to kind of bring things to a close here with a couple of rapid fire questions, but one question that I've, I've wanted to ask you, um, and I really ask a lot of our guests is, uh, what role have mentors played in your development as performance scientists and what you're doing today? Um, it's, it's been huge. You know, the, the mentors uh, and key people and good friends have played an absolutely uh, uh, critical role. Uh, there's no way I'll be doing all these interesting things um, uh, and have these opportunities without them. Um, I mean, I, I'm happy to name name a few people if that's uh, um, kind of uh, a, go for it. A, a, a go for it. But, if you want to give them a shout out, go for it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's quite a few. I mean, like one of the um, early ones uh, was because I'm very interested in nutrition as well, um, and I was an undergraduate um, studying sports science, and I was obsessed with supplementation, um, and uh, because I tried lots of different supplements when I was cycling to try and improve my performance. And um, mm-hmm. there was one professor in particular um, uh, called Ron Morn. You can Google him, Professor Ron Morn, very well-known nutritional researcher uh, or nutritional uh, or scientist. And, and, and he never really taught undergraduates, but he 
occasionally did. And he taught one of our undergraduate um, uh, lectures. And afterwards, I kind of you know was in the queue of people to go and speak with him with their geeky questions. You know, while everyone else went and had a beer, probably. And you know, it was like Ron. I was like, you know, I asked him. I asked him some question. I can't remember what obscure supplement I asked his opinion on. He basically <laughs> said, "If it works, it's probably banned." And that really stuck with me because wow. I realised that he was probably right. You know, uh, and there's a general principle which underlie uh, underlie that, and and it, it really forced me to take a much more simplified approach, I think, to thinking about nutrition, but also thinking about training more generally. Uh, and that idea of he he had such a deep understanding, but he he really did keep things quite simple in terms of the advice he gave, and, and so that really it was. I've only ever had like a couple of interactions with him that really stuck with me. Um, the other person who's someone else who wouldn't remember me, um, I, I think, but uh, it was someone called Dr. Inigo Samalan. Um, and I first met Dr. Inigo back in 2006. He does a lot um, of work. In, he's Colorado State, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So he's uh, originally from Spain. When I met him in 2006, uh, he was working uh, as a physiologist and doctor at the Sonia Deval professional cycling team. Um, I just stopped racing a year before and uh, I was speaking to him. And in the conversation, something that he said really resonated with me. And because I'd been dieting a lot, I was really skinny. I was about 63 kilos and I'd wow. struggled a lot. Um, with that, you know, with overtraining in hindsight. Um, but he was, he wasn't talking about me. He was talking about the cyclist he worked with. And um, he was one of the best physiologists and he's, he's actually coached the most recent Tour de France winner as well. He knows what he's talking about. He said, um, many cyclists diet too much. Um, and he talked about how they have these hypercaloric diets. They don't eat enough calories to fuel the work. Um, and in his view, he said it was better that riders have a better diet and that he would prefer a rider to be a kilogram overweight and a kilogram in professional cycling terms is massive, um, but he preferred them to be a kilo over with strength and underweight. And mm -hmm. the conversation I had with him got me thinking about the fact that, you know, in sport initially, there's probably a way to combine health and performance. And that idea that we can combine health and performance and they actually don't need to be um, in conflict with each other really stuck with me. And um, there's another person, uh, Professor Stephen uh, Saylor, who is responsible for a lot of the work around polarized training as a physiologist. Um, and uh, I'd encourage you to look at this polarized training in intensity distribution, this idea that we spend a relatively large amount of time at this low intensity with smaller focus time at high intensity and, and really minimize time in this middle zone. That really got me thinking. I saw the benefits in my own training and others physiologically, and it really got me thinking about, is there a general principle here that could be applied to cognitive work too? Um, and uh, there's, I mean, there's loads and loads of people I could talk about. Um, there's a guy called Professor Olivier Ullier, not a very well-known neuroscience publicly. I met him when he was at the World Economic Forum. He's global head of health strategy. Uh, he's, a, he's got hundreds of papers to his name, but his main interest is in measuring the gap between intention and action, what we think we do and what wow. we actually do. That's huge, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, That's and just such an interesting field. Like, how do you even, I mean, it's a massive field to study, but like, how do you even... I, don't know, I wouldn't even know how to go about doing that in some cases, but that's pretty fascinating. Well, that and that's the challenge with that question is what has led to all kinds of interesting conversations. And uh, we're actually working together now, a company called uh, uh, called Optivio. Uh, but you know, Olivia played a really fundamental role in forcing me to think clearly about the limits and the opportunities in measurement tools, um, uh, as well as like the interplay between physiology, anatomy, biology, our brains, and, and then how we interact with the world. Um, so he's he's continues to be a really key influence. A guy called Professor Stephen Lockley is a professor of sleep and circadian rhythm at Harvard. Really informed a lot of the thinking I've shared today around 
kind of uh, when we're at our best and circadian rhythm and chronotype. I mentioned Professor Mark Cropley. Um, and, um, and, and finally, there's a guy called Dr. Aki Hintzer, um, who founded a company called Hintzer Performance. And um, he gave me this job kind of uh, back in 2015. Um, I don't work with the company anymore, but um, uh, you know, he, he um, uh, gave me a, a job with the company, this human high performance company, and with this fantastic broad canvas uh, and resources to pursue my, my curiosity and creativity in this world of human well-being and performance. So you know, I really need to, to give a shout out to him. But I could keep going, I won't in the interest of time. All these people probably haven't heard of these people, maybe not interested, but they're really, you know, fantastic people who've had a huge influence on me. So really wanted to 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 name them. Well, I'll I'll link to all of these people in the show notes because uh, I know a number of them, and of course the the ones that I don't know, I'm I'm gonna go and do a little bit of Google searching afterwards. But uh, two final, uh, just rapid fire questions for you, James. When you really need to focus, like really just tap in, what's your go to? Do you have any tools that you use in particular? Um, Perhaps, I don't know if you're in a supplement. Well, you just mentioned your supplement story, but these supplements, like what do you use to really focus? So I think, I mean, that supplement wise, you can't beat caffeine. There's some brilliant studies that show that like, <laughs> caffeine is actually, um, uh, uh, it's been shown to be as potent and effective as modafinil, you know, which is quite a popular mm-hmm. smart drug. Um, and so, yeah, I use supplements, but it's, it's mainly caffeine. Uh, it's pretty simple. The other one, this is going to be really boring, I'm afraid. It's hydration. So even pretty small amounts of hydration significantly impact cognitive performance. And uh, so, so that's, um, uh, uh, yeah, that's another one. The other one is actually glucose. Now, obviously health wise, ideally we want to avoid big spikes in our blood sugar. You know, it's been associated with um, uh, kind of increased risk of metabolic disease, even healthy people. However, um, there's a, this transient effect uh, um, associated with increasing blood glucose acutely that boosts cognitive performance. If I really need to boost my cognitive performance potentially at the detriment to my long-term metabolic health and can't be kind of uh, about 20 even 50 grams of carbohydrate uh, of sugar just neck it with some caffeine Mm -hmm. and i think about it the same way as i would if i was racing so when i was cycling i used to use energy drinks they're terrible for my health but they made me go faster and this is kind of the same thing for cognitive work so that's kind of the, the nutritional stack uh, and then obviously, you know, with them, uh, the uh, kind of my environment is is huge. And again, it's simple. It's about turning stuff off, um, full screen on the one thing I'm concentrated on, making sure that my screen's at the right height. There's some interesting research out of the Huberman lab about, you know, uh, the orientation of our eyes influencing our alertness. And uh, and I've actually found that effect myself. So I'm not on a laptop down here. I'm actually looking up. Um, mm-hmm. And so modify my environment. And then um, kind of psychologically, it's really about, identifying those priorities just what is the one thing that i'm going to focus on now and what is the outcome i'm trying to achieve and 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 just zoom in on that and then of course pomodoro technique 90 minute block of pomodoros in the peak period of my day which for me generally is kind of probably about a couple of hours after i wake up um, and and then lock in and just try and get that great work done and um uh, and generally it works when it doesn't i try not to beat myself up too much about it book which has most impacted your life and how you show up to it oh you've that's a curveball um, yeah I, I i had to leave you with something like yeah. this is like a classic knuckleball right it can move all over the place so 
if you have one or two or maybe even a handful, it's okay too. Yeah, I think like one of the the most influential psychology, kind of popular psychology books, um, was uh, when I read um, "Thinking Fast and Slow" by Daniel Kahneman, and the, you know, the dual process, uh, dual process of the mind, that kind of model has obviously got massive limitations, and again, it's a heuristic, but it really it was very practical. It really opened up my mind to some different ways of thinking, uh, particularly when I was starting to get more into looking at psychology, not just physiology. Um, so that's yeah, that's a that's a really uh, a really big one there, um, and um, the so this idea of uh, so anti fragile by uh, Nassib Nicholas Taleb, he um, that um, wasn't so much the detail of that book, um, just the idea, this idea that mm-hmm. there was something beyond resilience, um, that actually in the right conditions, challenge and uncertainty can create opportunities for growth. Um, and um, and so that really resonated with me. This idea of uh, of, of anti fragility. So there 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 are a couple. And unfortunately, often I end up spending a lot of time just reading journal articles, loads of them. So ah, this is why sometimes too. I struggle with popular books because I'm just like, you know, when was the last time I actually sat down and read a popular book cover to cover? You know, um, <laughs> it's quite a long time ago. Most of the time, I'm kind of stuck in PubMed, kind of looking around, see what I can find. Very cool. James, this has been a very inspiring conversation for me, and I know that it's going to be for everybody listening to this podcast. So uh, thank you for taking the time. But where, if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, where should we direct them to? Um, so I've got a website, and um, and so that's jameshewittsperformance.com. And uh, you know, would uh, love it if you're interested, if you sign up to the newsletter on there. Um, and uh, I, I push out a, a weekly newsletter of kind of all kinds of ideas and stuff I've found. Um, so we'd really appreciate it if you're interested to, to give that a go. And um, there's also an online course there as well, an academy sharing some of the ideas that I talked about today. Um, but um, but then also um, there's a new company which we're working on, which is trying to trying to operationalize some of this science in terms of detecting when you're at your best, when you're stressed, helping people to identify and overcome. Uh, kind of their leading causes of stress and schedule their time in relation to that. Uh, that's a company called Optivio, optivio.com. It's not available to the public yet, but again, there's a waiting list. Um, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to plug that because uh, I know that's not the, the main intention of this podcast, but they're the two two main places. And obviously, usual suspects, you can find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, James P. Hewitt. I haven't got many followers. I really struggle to find the time to engage with social media, but <laughs> at least I do put some stuff out there to, uh, uh, which people can find. But yeah, and uh, we'd really welcome the opportunity to connect with people. If they've got questions, there's stuff they wanted to follow up on, they want to challenge me on, there's stuff that people think I might be interested in. Such an amazing source, isn't it, uh, of, of knowledge and ideas and would really welcome the opportunity to connect with some of your listeners. Absolutely. And I, I highly recommend the newsletter. It's um, it's very thoughtful, James, and it really targets uh, what we've been talking about today quite a bit. So again... Thanks. Uh, I'll link to all of this in the show notes for everybody tuning in here. And James, thank you for the time today. You're welcome. Thank you. To all the listeners out there, have an absolutely epic day. It's not often that I listen to a podcast or record a podcast with somebody and sit down and immediately afterwards watch that recording. And in this case, I did. I took so many notes, and hopefully most of those get captured in the show notes for this episode, that I'm just really, really excited to release this to you guys, and I want your feedback. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, and 
really, tell me what you think. I want to hear from you. The show notes for this one again are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash James. And thank you for your attention.